Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity on this holy convocation to come apart from the cares of this life and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you'd bless us as we reflect on the sanctuary and its relevancy to our day-to-day lives. Father in heaven, you know that my feet are made of clay. I need your help, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would take my humanity, my weakness and my frailty, and take these words, may you apply them to every heart as we reflect on you and your word. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers, for we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. On the screen, I have a photograph of a young boy. His testimonial was posted at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was born five pounds, seven ounces, and immediately after he was born, there were complications surrounding his birth, and he had to go to the NICU. Soon thereafter, uh, they continued to have challenges with his birth weight back and forth to the hospital, and finally, by the age of three, he was diagnosed with the failure to thrive. Failure to thrive is medical terminology simply stating that a child fails to grow and gain weight, and they took him to the hospital. He was immediately admitted, and they had to insert a feeding tube into this child, And through providential workings, much prayer, and the medical staff, he was able to get surgery to help him swallow his food better, and by the grace of God, he's a healthy boy today. And I want you to notice what was posted on the website in regards to this child. This is a quotation from the mother. She says, we are so happy to watch our growing, thriving little boy running and playing just like any other four-year-old. It's one thing to be born, and it's another thing to grow after birth. Both are essential for human life. So much of the focus surrounding a pregnancy is on birth, and rightfully so, but after birth In order for the child to be a healthy child, there must be growth, development after birth. And today we are talking about the holy place experience and specifically what we call sanctification. What is sanctification? And the easiest way to describe sanctification is by comparing it with justification. On the screen, I have two columns. On the left hand, justification. And the right-hand column, I have sanctification. I want to read through this so we can compare them. Now, we, in our Greek paradigm of analysis, we like to separate things, but it's not easy to separate between birth and growth, if you understand. But this is just for our own analysis to help us to differentiate between the two. Justification on the left-hand side, birth, becoming alive. That's what takes place in the courtyard. You become alive, the new birth, the newborn baby in Christ. Sanctification is growth, thriving, alive. Justification, as we described yesterday, is covering. Sanctification involves cleansing. Justification 
is God's declaration. Sanctification is transformation. Justification has to do with our status. Sanctification has to do with our character. Justification is our title for heaven. Sanctification is our fitness for heaven. Justification is what God thinks of us. Sanctification is what we think of God. Justification is the imputed righteousness of Christ, and sanctification is the imparted righteousness of Christ. Justification is what God does for you. Sanctification is what God does in you. Justification is like getting married. Sanctification is like staying married. Justification is pardon. Sanctification is power. Justification is the objective gospel. Sanctification is the subjective gospel. Now, when you look at the history of theology, you will notice that there tends to be a pendulum that swings back and forth between two extremes. And when we look at this pendulum, it's important for us to recognize that in our Christian experience, there is the tendency to react and go from one pendulum swing to another. I've noticed that children that sometimes grow up in very conservative homes end up being more liberal, and then children that grow up in more liberal homes uh, grow up to be more conservative. Now, this is not always the case, but we, we tend to react from one pendulum swing to another. And this is true in regards to justification and sanctification. Um, there has, in the history of Christian theology, been this pendulum swing between justification and sanctification, and one person comes and emphasizes one to the negation of the other, and vice versa. But I want you to notice the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 11, the words to the woman that was caught in adultery. He said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Here we have encapsulated in a very brief sentence where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. What is that? That is justification. And then he says, go and sin no more. That is sanctification. That is the promise. So, Jesus brings these two together, pardon and power, as important aspects of the gospel, just as being born and growing after birth, um, birth growth is important as well. Uh, justification is pardon from sin, and sanctification is power over sin. And I want to read this quotation from Ellen White in the book Education, page 36. She says, another lesson the tabernacle through its service of sacrifice was to teach the lesson of pardon of sin and, and I put that in caps for emphasis, and power through the Savior for obedience unto life. Notice what she says here. She says that the tabernacle, the sanctuary, shows us 
that it's the lesson of the pardon for sin and power through the Savior for an obedient life. The sanctuary brings together the courtyard experience and the holy place experience. Now, if you go to someone that is a drug addict and you tell them, I have good news and I have bad news, the good news is that you are forgiven, you have a clean record, and all of your drug addiction and drug use from the past, you stand before God as though you have never sinned, and he says, what's the bad news? The bad news is that you're going to be a drug addict for the rest of your life. There is no power. That would be an incomplete gospel. And I'm so glad that God not only gives us power, but He gives us pardon as well. He not only gives us pardon, but He gives us power as well. Now, on the screen, I have a pendulum. And when you study the history of Christian theology, you will notice that there tends to be a reactive element when theologians come and emphasize one aspect of the gospel to the negation or categorical rejection of another aspect of the gospel. And what, what happens typically is one theologian emphasizes one point, and then there's another theologian that reacts to that and goes to the other extreme. Now, what do we call something when you emphasize one aspect to the negation of the other. You call it heresy. For instance, when you look at law and grace, when you look at the pendulum, if you reject law to the affirmation of grace, you have an incomplete gospel, and the same goes the other way. When you look at the history of theology, you look at this tension between what we call transcendence and eminence. God is beyond us, He's much bigger than us. You just have to look at the universe to recognize that. God, in some respect, even in eternity, will always be a mystery, but also God is close to us. He is eminent, and we need to hold these two in a tension. On the screen, I have another slide in regards to the nature of Christ, and you have two tensions that are there. You have one that is the human nature of Christ, and you have the divinity of Christ, if you affirm the humanness of Jesus and reject the divinity of Jesus, you have heresy. There are theologians, there have been theologians that have come along and said that Jesus was human and nothing else. There are other theologians that have reacted to that and said that Jesus is divine, but he's not human. Docetism, Gnosticism, and other heresies that crept in in the early Christian centuries. So, when you look at the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, we need to recognize that it's not either or, it's both and. The same is in regards to faith and reason, and by application in regards to today's topic, in regards to justification and sanctification, we need to look at it like the divinity and the humanity of Christ. It's not either or, it's both and. In the 1700s, the 16th century, I should say, Copernicus discovered that the sun was the center of our solar system. This was known as the Copernican Revolution, and that the planets orbited the sun. Approximately 75 years later, another gentleman by the name of Johannes Kepler, a German mathematician, was observing the planetary orbits of the sun and was puzzled. 
because according to his calculations, he noticed that the orbit of the planets around the sun was not a perfect circle. It was assumed up to that point in astronomy during that time that the orbit of the planets around the sun was a perfect circle, and he came up with what is known as the third law of planetary motion, Kepler's third law of planetary motion, and he came to the conclusion, and it was later verified, that the orbit of planets around the sun was not a circle, but rather it was what he called an ellipse. Now, you can draw an ellipse at home using a uh, piece of string and two tacks, and the fundamental difference between an ellipse and a circle is that an ellipse has two central points, while a circle has one. An ellipse has two central points, while an ellipse has one. And this analogy helps us to understand how we can keep our understanding of justification and sanctification not in a circular paradigm, but rather in an elliptical paradigm. Both pardon justification and sanctification are essential for the Christian experience, just like the courtyard and the holy place. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, the Bible says, "...such were some of you, but you were washed..." You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Here, Paul brings together justification and sanctification. And Ellen White, in the book Steps to Christ, page 63, says, Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and in that wrought by His Spirit working in and through us. Here she brings them together again. She says the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, that is justification, and by His Spirit working in and through us, that is sanctification. Both are essential for the Christian experience. Now, when you look at the bird's eye view of the sanctuary, we noted that the sanctuary implies movement, and the movement is back to the throne of God, back to the face-to-face relationship that Adam and Eve had had before the fall. Adam and Eve before the fall were in the most holy place. They were able to have a face-to-face communion with God. As a result of sin, the entire human race was placed outside of the gate, and the sanctuary illustrates the movement of God in bringing humanity and individuals personally into the courtyard, into the holy place, and into the most holy place. When He brings us into the courtyard, we discussed this yesterday, He covers us with His robe, and we are declared righteous. We are covered, and then we are cleansed. Then God brings us into the holy place experience. We're born in the courtyard, and He says, as long as you're alive in Christ, you're going to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about sanctification, the Bible uses the analogy of sunlight. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining brighter and brighter till the full light of day. Now, I pastor in Alaska, 
And this time of the year, we experience a lot of sunlight. It is either feast or famine, you will find. And this time of year, the sun comes up in Anchorage. Depends on how far north you are, but give or take, in Anchorage, the sun comes up about 3.30 a.m. and then goes down around midnight, the longest day. And even when the sun goes down, you can still read a newspaper outside because it doesn't seem to completely go down. There's still twilight, and there's times when you're outside and you're like, I'm really tired, I wonder why, and you look at your watch and it's midnight. <laughs> and then in the winter time, it's reverse. The Bible describes sanctification like the rising of the sun, and even in Alaska, even though it's abnormal the way the sun rises compared to those that are closer to the equator, the rising of the sun is gradual. Praise the Lord for that. Can you imagine from pitch darkness, if the sun just rose like the height of the noonday in two seconds, we would be shocked. So the Christian experience, sanctification, is a process of illumination. Now, as we stated yesterday, once you come into the courtyard, you accept Jesus as your Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you're to die today at the resurrection, by the grace of God, you will be saved. Now, the point of sanctification is not about how far you get, but it's about being in the process. Now, notice that the analogy that the Bible uses for sanctification is a gradual process. It is not immediate. Many times it is even unconscious. Now, I have a graph here on the screen of birth justification and growth sanctification. Now, I've put it in the ideal trajectory of a straight line up, but I found that in my own sanctification, because of my own frailty and human weakness, it looks more like the stock market rather than a straight ascension toward heaven and translation. And there's grace in this process. Amen. Praise the Lord. So you're born in Jesus, and when I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior, He accepted me just the way that I was. He covered me with His robe. I was baptized. And then I began this process of transformation, character transformation, and it is a process. We're told that sanctification is the work of a lifetime. And many times the way that the Lord refines us is through trials, annoying people, roommates, your spouse, people that say things to you that just don't sit in the right place. You know, as a minister doesn't matter how many times you may have preached or been uh, in the pulpit, uh, the Lord has His ways of keeping you humble. I won't repeat the things that have said to me, have been said to me as a minister, but sometimes a dear saint comes to me, well-meaning, and they say, Pastor, you look gaunt. What's the matter with you? You look so frail and skinny. Are you eating Okay. And in my mind, it just doesn't sit well with me. It just kind of sits in my crawl right there. And I don't respond this way, but sometimes I want to. So you feel licensed to comment on my weight. Does that give me license to comment on yours? But, you know, this is all part of the sanctification experience. And I've wondered sometimes, why is it when I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior and I pray for patience that everything seems to go wrong that day? And it's this process of character refinement. And I praise God that I'm nowhere near where God wants me to be. But in my years 
journeying through the Christian experience, I praise God that I'm nowhere near where I was. And there has been growth and development through my frailty and my falling. Christ Object Lessons comments on sanctification, page 65, says, at every stage of development, our life may be perfect. So, notice what she's saying here. When you are born again in Jesus Christ, you are perfect in Him. It's not, this is not a Greek idea and philosophy of Platonic perfection. We many times think of perfection as this state that you arrive at. But according to Ellen White and her viewpoint of perfection, you can be perfect at every stage. In other words, you're a born-again Christian, and because of the righteousness of Christ, you are perfect in Him. And as you grow and develop, and as you learn to walk as a Christian, at that stage, you are perfect in Jesus. So, it's not about arriving. It's about being in the process. And it's not about how far you get. It's about abiding in Jesus. As long as you are abiding in Christ, you will grow. Go back to that quotation, Christ Object Lessons, page 65. At every stage of development, our life may be perfect, yet if God's purpose for us is fulfilled, there will be continual advancement. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. You can never come to the place where you say, I've arrived. I know one dear saint, she says, she said, I haven't sinned for two years. I'm perfect. Now, I have, that just doesn't sit well with me because I think pride is a sin, isn't it? And uh, if she did have that track record, she just broke it with that statement. Now, the irony of sanctification is this. The closer you come to Christ, the more inadequate you feel. And the less you feel righteous in the sense of self-righteousness. Now, this is not to say that we are to be in this morbid state of melancholy and wallowing in our insufficiencies, but there is this unconsciousness of where we are in our Christian experience, and this is from the Bible Echo, um, Ellen White. She says, the closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes, for your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in distinct contrast with His perfect character. Be not discouraged. This is an evidence that Satan's delusions are losing their power. I believe that the last generation that we call the 144,000, they will never feel perfect in the sense that they feel that they've arrived. They will always we will always, by the grace of God, feel our inadequacy. The closer you come to Jesus, the more distinct, the more faulty you will feel. This is the irony and the paradox of sanctification. And we need to be careful that it doesn't matter how many years we may have been Christian, 30, 40, 50 years, if we come to the place where we say, look, I'm better than other people because I'm a vegan vegetarian and I'm teaching the Sabbath school lesson, it's actually an indication that we're further away from Jesus and not closer. Are you following me? Notice in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees God, he says, woe is me. 
That's the immediate reaction of someone that comes in contact with God. So, this is the paradox of sanctification. The closer you come to God, the more overwhelming is your sense of your need for the righteousness of Christ and not your own righteousness. When we look at the woman caught in adultery, we see the grace of God that is there even after God says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. The trajectory of Mary after that experience with Jesus was not a straight shot up toward translation. She had challenges. She had addictions. She had a lifestyle that she had to overcome. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 2, the Bible indicates that among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast seven demons. So after this encounter with Jesus, Mary Magdalene fell back into her old ways. And Ellen White, in the book Desire of Ages, indicates that this was not only seven demons, but it was seven times. Desire of Ages, page 568. Seven times she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. God did not give up on Mary. Praise God. You know, when I look at the mercy of God in my own life, after conversion, I'm thankful for His forbearance. I would have given up on me. And I praise the Lord that He does not give up. Now, God's power is there to, for that upward trajectory, but here you see the grace of the process. Now, here in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, the Bible says, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Now, when I was baptized and accepted Jesus as my Savior, and I went down into that water, contrary to Catholic theology, Adventist theology does not put forth the proposition that that water is sacred and holy. It's a symbol. In other words, when you come down into that water, go down into that water and come up the other side, it's a symbol of what has taken place in the heart in terms of conversion and justification and the process of sanctification. But what we need to realize is that when we are converted, God does not give us a lobotomy. You know what a lobotomy is? We take out a part of your brain. God does not come and give us a spiritual lobotomy where He takes out our brain and replaces it with a different one. What actually happens in the process of conversion, when you give your will to God, now you are able to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. But prior to that experience, you have all of these old neural pathways that are like highways that are there that are actually physical grooves in your brain. This is the way that we are operated, and it's a blessing and a curse. It's the way that habits are formed. If you drove to camp meeting, you did not have to get in the car and focus to put the key in the ignition, turn it, and then think to yourself, where's the brake? It's all automatic. They say by the age of 30, those neuropathways are so developed that brushing your teeth, which shoe you put on, it's all automatic. And the same goes for our habits 
and our lifestyle prior to accepting Christ. Those neural pathways are there. The difference is after conversion, you now have the power of the indwelling Christ and the Holy Spirit to help you to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, to build new neural pathways. But anytime you're attempting to build new neural pathways, it is hard. It takes effort. God-given effort, God-given strength, and we have a two-year-old. I remember when he was learning how to walk, sometimes we think that God is worse than our parents. I've never seen a loving parent watching their baby to learn how to walk, and the first time he falls, censure, reproof, quite the contrary. There's a lot of grace. Amen? God, on an infinite level, beyond that, when we get baptized, and because of our human weakness, we're learning how to walk, He's not up there to censure us when we fall because of our own human weakness. Now, physically speaking, as you develop... Most of us in this room do not fall physically every day, unless you have a medical condition. In other words, you don't get up every day and say, oh, I have to have my daily physical fall. I wonder when it's going to come. The, the point is that there has been maturity and development. Amen? Now, analogously, in the Christian experience, by the grace of God, building new neural pathways, we can learn to walk in Jesus. And I have on the screen uh, a neuron, and modern neurology has shown us this principle of neuroplasticity. Now, I used to think that neuroplasticity was like plastic, something hard, and neuroplasticity actually shows us that our brains are able to change. Many people thought that our brains were set even in our senior citizen years, but modern studies have shown that it's never too late to change and build new neural pathways. Now, when you, when you practice something over and over again, there is something that grows on the end of these dendrites called boutons. There's a physical change in the neuron that enables that, that neuron to fire easier. And this is from Dr. Chalmers. He's a brain scientist. He said, brain scientists have discovered that any thought or action that is often repeated is actually building these little boutons on the ends of certain nerve fibers that it becomes easier to repeat the same thought or action each time. Established habits make literal pathways. Frequent repetition of the same thought feeling, sorry for the typo, or action wear a deeper groove. Just as repeatedly walking over a lawn will wear a deep path on the sod. He goes on, so when you fall, the thing to do is to get up and start working on the new neural pathway again. You never lose ground on that new pathway because the boutons are not erased by the occasional fall. Steps of Christ, page 64. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. 
But we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken, and rejected of God. She goes on, our characters are not set times and occasions, but by the Spirit and the trend of the life. The important thing to remember about sanctification, it's about trajectory. It's about the trend. It's about where you are going. And it's not a time to beat ourselves up because of the occasional fall, but to think of it in terms of where God is leading you and what is your trajectory. Steps of Christ, page 57 and 58. The character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency and the habitual words and acts. When we think of sanctification... I'd like to reflect on the experience that Peter had on that night that he betrayed Jesus. It was a powerful moment, uh, not because he had betrayed Jesus, but because of the reaction of Jesus in that moment. The Bible says that as Peter was swearing and using very colorful language to deny Jesus, that in that moment, Jesus turned and looked at him. So you can imagine this in your mind eye. In the midst of his tirade and denial of Jesus, Jesus turns and locks eyes with, with Peter. That was more than Peter could bear, and he runs off into the darkness. I want to read Ellen White's commentary on this in interaction between Jesus and Peter. While the degrading oaths were fresh on Peter's lips and the shrill crowing of the cock was still ringing in his ears, the Savior turned from the frowning judges and looked full upon his poor disciple. At the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his master. And notice the face of Jesus in this moment. In that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. This is the lowest moment in Peter's experience, and look at the countenance of Christ as he's denying, as Peter is denying Jesus. Pity, sorrow, but no anger there. I think we have this picture of God sometimes when we make a mistake of an angry, vindictive God. This scene in the garden, or after the garden in the court of Caiaphas, shows us that God's countenance is anything but anger. The, the sight of that pale, suffering face, those quivering lips, that look of compassion and forgiveness pierced Peter's heart like an arrow. I want to read this again. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken, and rejected by God. So, we have this wonderful tension. Jude 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, power. Praise his name for that. And on the other hand, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And it's in the beautiful tension of these two realities that we can walk the Christian life. Power to keep you from falling. The power is there. The power is available. Every addiction, every habit, every chain that is around you, God's power is able to deliver you from any addiction, sexual addiction, drug addiction, you name it. God's power is able to cure you of that disease of sin. The power is available. At the same time, pardon. When you fall, if you fall, God says, I'm right here. Get back up and keep on going. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And this is the holy place experience. Now, I want to focus in on this article of furniture that's in the holy place. If I had more time in this series and this seminar, I would elaborate more on the other uh, articles of furniture in the holy place. Uh, the three articles of furniture exemplify the sanctification experience. And the, the menorah is probably the most theologically rich and complex out of all of the articles of furniture. It was crafted in a way that was to represent an olive tree. There was one central stem with six stems coming from that central one. It was uh, a gold menorah, a gold candlestick, and there were these olive-shaped bowls on top that was to hold olive oil and a wick. And the priest's function and role was to daily make sure that the, the bowls on top of this menorah were filled with oil and the lamps were trimmed. The only source of light in the holy place was the menorah, the candlesticks. And I have a profound appreciation for, for light. You know, when I first was uh, called to Alaska, I, I said, Lord, what did I do wrong? Why have you exiled me to Alaska? Um, people just don't know. It's actually paradise. I, I, I really appreciated it there. Um, but this past winter was very difficult for me for some reason. Um, sun comes up around 10.30 and goes down around 3.30 in, in the darkest day. And it's given me a new appreciation for light. When you look at the symbolism of the menorah, um, want to move very quickly through the symbolism. Um, first of all, it refers to Christology. Uh, John 1, 9, 8, verse 12, Jesus is the light of the world. So first, this menorah refers to Jesus Christ, who is the illumination. And in Anchorage, we have uh, a very high crime rate. Um, it's one of the top crime centers in America, according to the New York Times. The story goes that many parents wanted to move their kids out of Los Angeles and out of the gangs, so they thought, uh, what's the furthest place I can go? Oh, Anchorage, Alaska. And needless to say, all those gangs moved up to Anchorage. And there is a spiritual darkness in Anchorage. There's a spiritual darkness in Michigan as well, in our cities in particular, and goes out into the country. And this illumination this spiritual illumination that's represented by the menorah is Jesus Christ. And even uh, in addition to that, we also have ecclesiology. 
Jesus is the light of the world, but in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. The church is the light of the world. Moving on in our symbolism here, the oil represents the Holy Spirit, according to Luke chapter 4, verse 18, and Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. And look at the rich symbolism here. The priest was to, who's, who's Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, Jesus our priest in heaven. So look at the rich symbolism. The, the lamps were to be burning, and it represents Christ and the church. We are the light of the world, he says. And notice what was the daily responsibility of the priest. The priest was to come and fill the lamps daily with the oil. This daily filling, the Holy Spirit, enabled the light to burn. I had the privilege and opportunity of of being a Bible worker in South Central Los Angeles a number of years ago. Uh, don't let this baby face fool you. Um, someone came up to me and said, uh, you look like a teenager. And uh, for some reason, uh, I've been able to reverse the aging process. For those of you wondering, I'm 42, believe it or not. Um, back in 1997, I was a Bible worker in South Central Los Angeles, and, and that summer changed my life. We pitched a tent on Florence and Figueroa. It was known as Prostitution Lane, and we went door to door, no mail out, just knocking on doors, prayer requests. We went into Watts. It was South Central and Watts. That summer, I saw individuals, first contact, knocked on their door to the meetings. We had about 700 to 1,000 people coming to the meetings every single night. And we would pray every single night, every other night. Every other night we would pray through our names uh, for about four to five hours. And I saw people that I had contacted from the door to the meetings to the waters of baptism. And I remember standing by the pool as I saw the person that I had contacted being baptized and just weeping tears of joy. I'd never taken drugs, but that was the highest the spiritual high that I've ever experienced. Changed my life, and I said, Lord, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And there's something about Bible studies. Every time I give a Bible study on the Sabbath or State of the Dead, and I see the individual's eyes light up because they're hearing it for the first time. I vicariously experience the newness and the joy of that truth again. And this is one reason why I believe that God has called us to be a light, to be a witness. When you look at the word Tamid, it refers to continually, the priest was to tend to the bread and to keep it continually before the Lord. So, the table of showbread, Tamid, continually before the Lord. When you look at the lamps, Tamid is used again. The priest was to tend the lamps daily to keep the lamps burning continually before the Lord. And also the same for the incense, it was to be Tamid, burning continually. 
And these three, by application, in regards to our sanctification, people have said that the bread represents Bible study, feed, read. The incense refers to prayer, prayer, air. Prayer is the breath of the soul, and the candlesticks are our witness and ministry. And the word tamid alludes to this reality that the word prayer and witnessing is to be continually part of our Christian experience. Now, one of the reasons why I believe that God has called us to be a witness is found in this quotation in Steps of Christ, page 79. God might have committed the message of the gospel and the work of loving ministry to the heavenly angels, but in His infinite love, He chose to make us co-workers with Himself, Christ and the angels, that we might share the blessing, the joy, the spiritual uplifting which results from this unselfish ministry. You recognize that we can't take anything to heaven. You can't take your car, you can't take your home. Uh, we're not even going to be able to take our bodies, praise the Lord. Your 401k won't do you any good in heaven. And I believe that the reason that God has, one of the reasons that God has called us to witness is because He wants us to have a share in His kingdom. The only thing that you can take to heaven is your character and other people. I think of this young student at MSU when I was pastoring at East Lansing. His name was Carlo, and he gave Bible studies to uh, an atheist Chinese student. Gave her a card at a bus stop. Nine months later, long story short, she became a Seventh-day Adventist, came to this country as an atheist, and left this country as a Seventh-day Adventist Bible-believing Christian. I want you to think about the returns of that. By the grace of God, when Carlo's in heaven and he sees Lu Yang, this atheist-turned-Adventist, in heaven, that the returns on that joy, who can quantify that? Have you ever been somewhere by yourself and wished that you were not alone? Heaven forbid that we're in heaven alone. Heaven forbid that in that cloud we're searching and our family is not there. Our friends are not there. Our church members are not there. And God has given us the opportunity to be a light, to be a conduit of truth. And it only comes through Christ filling us daily with the Holy Spirit. The other aspect of, of why God has called us to be a light, God could have called us or had us reach His object in saving sinners without our aid, but in order for us to develop a character like Christ, we must share in His work. I lived in Adventist communities, and the tendency sometimes, if you're not careful, is that you hang out with Seventh-day Adventists all day. You live in your commune, navel-gazing, looking at your own problems, introspection, I heard one illustration by an individual saying that if you get too much salt together and it's never used, it starts to stink. God has called us to be a conduit for light in order that we might develop 
a selfless spirit. Moving very quickly, uh, I found out a couple months ago that the wicks that were used according to rabbinical literature were made from the linen robes of the priests, and fascinating application that the robe represents the righteousness of Christ. So even our witness is not because of who we are, but because of the, the fire that is burning in our hearts by the righteousness of Christ. And when we look at the origination of the fire, they were not just to go in there and light these lamps using a lighter. The origination for the lamps, according to this slide I have on the screen, the fire for lighting the lamps was not common fire, but was from the brazen altar, according to Exodus chapter 30, verse 7 through 9. So, think about the implications of this, that the fire that kept the lamps burning was from the sacrifice that took place on the altar. That holy fire was taken and was to light the menorah. In other words, our motivation for witness is not because we have to, but because we want to. It's an internal motivation. It's an internal drive. Now, when we look at the lampstands, the Bible indicates, as we alluded to earlier, that they were to be filled daily, morning and evening. Our power to witness is from the daily filling of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at the words of Jesus in regards to the Holy Spirit, notice what Jesus says about the Comforter, the Spirit of truth that will come. John chapter 14, verse 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, and He lives, and I have these two words italicized, He lives with you and will be in you. Jesus clearly states that the disciples had the Holy Spirit with them, paraclete, the original word for the Holy Spirit, para, alongside. The Holy Spirit will be with you, and he says, and will be in you. Future tense, he says, the Holy Spirit is now with you, but there will come a time when he will be in you. In other words, prior to Pentecost, when you look at the scope of Scripture, the Holy Spirit was with the disciples. But the Holy Spirit took a position from being alongside to the in position. Are you following me? He is with you, but will be in you. Now, the Holy Spirit is significant because the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 27, and by this we know that He, Jesus, abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. The Holy Spirit will bring with Him the presence of Jesus. Now, Jesus right now is ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. But through the Holy Spirit abiding in us, He brings with Him the presence of Jesus, the in Christ motif, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is Jesus able to be in us? It is through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is able to come in us. Desire of Ages, page 672, this promised blessing, the Holy Spirit, claimed by faith, 
brings all other blessings in His train. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything else. A.W. Tozer says this, If the Holy Spirit were taken away from our church today, 95% of what we would do would continue, and no one would notice the difference. If the Holy Ghost had withdrawn from the early church, then 95% of what they were doing would have stopped, and everyone would have noticed the difference. The Holy Spirit filled the disciples, went from an alongside position to the in position, and notice it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, you, you notice that this is, an, this is a different terminology. It wasn't with them. It was in them. The Holy Spirit was in the disciples. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 13, verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting to note that in the book of Acts, the Bible talks about another type of filling that is possible as well. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your hearts that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? In other words, the Bible describes and uses this metaphor of filling to indicate that we are like vessels, and we have the capacity and the potential to be filled with the Holy Spirit, or we have the capacity and potential to be filled with an evil spirit. Now, this is not to say that if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit that you are demon-possessed. Now, I was at a camp meeting not too long ago where in the youth tent, a gentleman came in and he was demon-possessed. I talked with the youth leader later and he said that uh, the demon would talk back to him and he said, my name is Legion for there are many. And the pastors gathered around and prayed over this individual and the demon or the demons left this person and went into a Bible worker. They prayed over the Bible worker, and he was delivered. Later on, they talked with the Bible worker and said, look, something's wrong. For some reason, those demons felt like they had an access point into you. And he said, I knew exactly what it was. There was an opening. This is a solemn thought for us to contemplate and reflect upon, is that all of us have the potential to be filled. And I pray by the grace of God that every day He takes His holy oil, the Holy Spirit, and fills me with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are external evidences of a Spirit-filled Christian. Uh, we call them the fruits of the Spirit. You're familiar with this. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no longer. This is the fruit. In other words, if you have the root, you will have the fruit. You will have these visible manifestations. You will have the fruit. Notice it doesn't say fruits. It says fruit, singular. These are different than the gifts. You can have the gift of preaching or the gift of teaching, but you can't say, Pastor, I don't have the gift of love. 
that's not a loving person. Uh, so these are, these are all things that come together. Now, the absence of the Spirit is called the natural man, and you find it in the same chapter. Here are the fruits of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, sorcery, hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When you read this list, there are some things that are here that are quite abhorrent. You think sorcery, oh, I would never practice that. A murder, drunkenness, revelry. But there are certain aspects of this that are much more ubiquitous. Hatred. Have you ever hated someone? What about outbursts of wrath? You ever have one of those? What about selfish ambition? What about jealousy? So you can see here that certain characteristics are abhorrent, but other ones are more universal. There's another aspect that comes into play with the absence of the Holy Spirit. Not only does it affect our morality, but it also affects our spiritual perception in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the Holy Spirit is required to understand this book. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and the absence of the Spirit, it doesn't matter if you have an IQ of 100 or 180, the absence of the Spirit will make this Scripture intelligible, understandable, rational, or irrational, depending on whether you have the Spirit or not. So, you can see that the Holy Spirit is essential for the Christian life in not only us bearing fruit, but also in our spiritual perception. Now, moving very quickly here, in Luke chapter 11, verse 9 through 13, Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. You can see on the screen, He says, six times to ask. Now, Many times we use these verses to apply to asking for a car or new house, but you can see that in verse 13, he says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And in the original language, it actually says, who keep on asking. In other words, it's not ask once and you're filled, but the implication that Jesus gives here is that the Holy Spirit is to be something or someone that you continue to ask for, a daily filling. Christ Object Lessons, page 145. God does not say, ask once and you shall receive. He bids us ask, unwearingly persist in prayer. The persistent asking brings the petitioner into a more earnest attitude and gives him an increased desire to receive the things for which he asks. So God's not up there with a counter saying, look, David's asked a hundred times, now I'll give him the Holy Spirit. 
But there's something about asking repeatedly for the Holy Spirit that increases our capacity to receive. Desire of Ages, page 672. It is the Holy Spirit. It, the Holy Spirit, is given according to the riches of the grace of Christ, and He is ready to supply every soul according to the capacity to receive. Now, when we had our child, so much of the focus, as we illustrated in our first presentation, was on the birth, and rightfully so. We went to pregnancy classes, breathing exercises, and after a long, prolonged labor, which seemed eternal, lack of sleep, insomnia, I mean, all of those things that come with childbirth, and when the child is born, was born, ah, we celebrated. That's why we have a birthday. Then came over our sleep-deprived consciousness that this child needed regular, daily, hourly filling. Filling. In other words, birth was one thing, but in order to sustain growth, that child needed continual filling. In the beginning, round-the-clock filling. I remember the nurse told me, you know that child needs to be fed every two hours. And I thought, and I asked her, you mean 24 hours around the clock? So the child needs filling around the clock. And the same is in our Christian experience. And D.L. Moody says this, many think that they are filled, many think that because they were filled once, they are filled forever. Oh, my friend, we are porous vessels it is necessary for us to constantly remain under the fountain in order to be filled. Now, the Holy Spirit is the stepchild of Christian theology. But in the book of Acts, everything comes to a screeching halt if you remove the Holy Spirit. They were filled daily with the Holy Spirit. Here it is in Acts of the Apostles, page 50. For the daily baptism of the Holy Spirit, every worker should offer his petition to God. Every day. We should get up in the morning and say, Lord, fill me is my earnest plea. That should be the prayer of our hearts, a daily filling of the Holy Spirit, because in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, it indicates that the Holy Spirit brings with Him the presence of Jesus. Now, there's a book that I highly, highly recommend. It's changed my life. I've shared it with the elders of my church. It's the book Steps to Personal Revival, and I got onto it because I heard a sermon by Dwight Nelson. He read it six times. It's a book by Helmut Habil. If you Google this title and this author, you can get a free ebook, but I recommend um, that you order it from Remnant Publication. It's like $2. This book describes in vivid detail reflection of the Bible and spirit of prophecy how the Holy Spirit is our greatest need in our church. Friends, I want to tell you that as a minister of the gospel, it seems like every year we get up front and we say, look, this program, and I'm all for programs, this program is going to finish the work. And so we all get in line and do the program, and then another couple years, another stack of papers comes up and says, it's actually this program that's going to finish the work. Now, I'm all for organization and programs, 
But programs are not a replacement for the Holy Spirit. The disciples did not gather in that upper room and come up with a program. Now, they were organized, as you can see in the upper room, but they prayed for the indwelling Christ. We need to have organization and programs, but it is not a replacement for the Holy Spirit. Now, as we begin to close, I want to do a brief reflection of this story in the Gospels of the man that was brought to Jesus by four friends. You have this artist's depiction here on the screen. I want you to notice the nature of what is taking place here. This man was paralyzed. I don't know if he was a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. But this man was incapable physically of coming to Jesus on his own. He couldn't do it. The only connection between Jesus and this man were his friends. He was dependent on his friends to bring him to Jesus. They had to literally carry him. So they tried to carry this man to Jesus, and they could not because of the crowd, and they went up on the roof and began to take apart the roof. It took boldness. It was not easy. And they lowered this man before Jesus. Notice what the Bible says about what Jesus saw. The Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith. Look it up. There is plural. It didn't say, when Jesus saw his faith. Now, his faith was important. But in this story, in this narrative, the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith. Faith. In other words, the collective faith of the connectors to Jesus, the collective faith of the friends, played a role in that man's not only physical restoration, but his spiritual restoration. When Jesus saw their faith, the implication here is that you can have faith for someone else. Now, this is not a replacement for their faith, but this is where intercessory prayer comes into the picture. Roger Morneau makes a powerful statement in his book, The Power of Prayer. He says that intercessory prayer gives God authorization to move above and beyond what He would normally be able in the context of the great controversy. Now, I sold books for a number of years door to door. When I would knock on these doors, especially the further I got north, there was a line, well, even in the south for that matter. In the south, they say, come on in. I say, you don't know me. They say, come on in anyway. Anyways, you know, there was this line that I would never cross. They could give me $100. They could give me a million dollars. They could say all types of nice things about me. But there was this line that I would never cross until I heard those powerful and profound words, come on in. And until I heard those words, I would stay at the threshold. 
Those are the most powerful words that you can say in your relationship with God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says Jesus is standing at the door of our hearts, and every day we can invite Jesus in. But in addition to that, when you pray for your son, when you pray for your daughter, when you pray for your parents that are outside of the church, or maybe they're in the church but not in a relationship with Jesus, it gives God authorization to move above and beyond what he would normally be able in the context of the great controversy. You can see in the book of Jude that when God is about to raise Moses from the dead, Satan is there to challenge that move. Satan is there to say, look, he doesn't deserve a resurrection. Moses does not deserve to go to heaven and be translated. You can see that every step in the great controversy that God wants to move, He needs permission. He needs consent. He needs authorization. And friends, God is calling us to intercede for our children. Amen? Heaven forbid, on that resurrection day, you know, when you're resurrected I believe that it's going to be a moment of euphoria and somewhat anxiety. Because you know the first thing on that resurrection day when I get up, I'm going to say, praise God, I'm here. And when I'm in that cloud, you better believe it. I'm searching for people. My wife, my son, my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my church family, and heaven forbid, in that cloud, you've searched it, your son daughter's missing. And that sinking realization comes in. They are not here. We have the unique opportunity to say, Lord, whatever it takes. Can you pray that prayer? That's a powerful prayer. Lord, whatever it takes. Full authorization. Save me. Save my family. Can you stand with me as we prepare to close this morning? Bow your heads with me. I just want to make a very simple appeal. This is between you and God, and Jesus is coming soon. But regardless of when he comes, the moment that we died, for us, that is the second coming. And if you today with me would like to say, Lord, whatever it takes, save me, and whatever it takes, save my children, save my family, save my parents. I want to invite you to come forward to the front for special prayer. This is just between you and God. Who cares what other people think? 
We're talking about eternal salvation. If you want to say, Lord, save me and do whatever it takes. Save me and save my family. And I want to pray that when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory, that no one is missing in our families, in our church. We're talking about eternal time. We're talking about things that make everything in this life pale into mere insignificance. And you want to say, Lord, whatever it takes, save me. If it takes making me uncomfortable, if it takes losing my possessions and my idols, save me and save my family. Do whatever it takes to save my son, my boy, my daughter, my parents, my aunts, and my uncles, so that on that resurrection day, no one is missing. This is eternal time. May the devil not cause us to be so consumed with the cares of this life that we have no time to ask, how is it with my soul, and to pray for our children. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, save us. Lord, do whatever it takes to save us. Break our addictions. Break our love for the things of this world. Break those habits that ensnare us. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. And Lord, today, we pray that you save our families. Save our children. Save our son and our daughter that may be out of the church and not in a relationship with you. Save them for your kingdom. Mold circumstances and events so that they will come to realize their need for you. Save our parents. Save our church, Lord. May you impress upon our hearts that eternity is at stake and that one day you will come in the clouds of glory and as we search that cloud, may we find every loved one there. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.